Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Eric Yoon. I serve on the worship team with the rest of the band. Uh, my family and I have been coming out here for several years and uh, thoroughly enjoy being the body of Christ with you all. This morning's scripture, we will be reading through Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 23. And I'll be reading from the ESV version. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others, the one of, of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is the word. Praise be to God. As we jump back into our Luke series, the evidence is endless. And as we see just last Sunday, getting to experience and share all that God did here in this community, in this county, in the whole world, and reminded that people were coming to faith. And as we got to celebrate through a baptism and hear the transformation that the gospel has taken root in another person's life, who went from death to life, and, and, and what a moving story that was. You can go, if you, if you missed it last week, or you um, want to watch it again, we recorded it, it's online. Um, and, and I'll never get tired of watching a baptism and to, and to see the impact on the church that it has to remind us of, man, I, I was that before I was made new. And as so many people are deciding to follow Jesus, as God's drawing them, they're coming alive and trusting in Jesus, there's been this movement underfoot where, as we see through this section of Scripture, verses 1 through 27, there's questions still that arise from, from the culture, the disciples are still processing, and, and for us, there's a a deconversion. There, there's this deconstruction movement where people are coming to Jesus and there's people that are in the church walking away from Jesus. It hits close to home as you think about uh, maybe your own journey. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you're in a youth group as I was, 180 kids plus, and then you get to senior year and you look around and there's like maybe you and one or two other people. You know, me and my buddy were playing video games, and most video games are one player, maybe two, and so there we are with just two players looking at each other going, what happened? We were so strong, and look at all our friends. Where did they go? They grew up in homes that loved Jesus. They grew up in homes that went to the church, that, that read scripture. We went on mission trips. As I, as I look back, I went on so many mission trips. I did so many things that were good, like Mexico a few times a year. In, through high school, like I'd find old guys that are going down to work on orphanages, and I'm like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in your bed or your truck. You got a camper, perfect. I'll be up there. Don't mind me. I'll carry your bags, whatever. I just got to go. And, and we're doing these things 
And somewhere along the way, questions arise and hurts happen and, and maybe you experience other cultures and other worldviews and you start having doubts. Many of my friends had these doubts that arose and well, maybe this isn't the only way. Rather than pursuing Jesus, these doubts grew. These questions were allowed to linger and, and, and the root of, of doubt took, took place. And as we see statistically, many people are walking away. They claimed, and most people aren't reading their Bibles. You wonder why people are just choosing to listen to another narrative or another worldview if they're not listening to Jesus' words on the world and the view that God has. So we're going to break up Luke chapter 9 into two weeks titling Leaving Jesus and Loving the World. Because if you love Jesus, you're not going to be friends with the world. You're going to be enemies with it. And if you leave Jesus, the only reason to leave Jesus is because you love the world. And you're going to make friends with the world, and you're going to be so enamored with the world. And so we need to open in, in, in order of prayer now and let the Spirit open our eyes to see the work He's going to continue to do in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we come humbly before You, submit to You that You'd open our eyes to see the power and the authority we have as we walk in Your Spirit, submitting to Your Word to transform, not, not just be pushed in, conform like the world does, but be transformed from the inside out to look like you, think like you, love like you, as you grow us into the image of Christ. We pray now you, your spirit would be with us and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's this reality that's taking place, and we see when... Jesus sends out his disciples in Luke chapter 9. He gives them power and authority over demons and to cure disease, over physical and spiritual affliction. Instead of looking at this challenging situation, we can blame or we can take responsibility. We can say, oh, well, this happened, or maybe it was more about the methods and the message, or we could look at ourselves and go, okay, let's open our minds and see how we, as Christians, might have got something wrong and how we can follow Jesus and, and be a better representation of Jesus to our family, friends, and in the world. So as we see Luke 9, Jesus very clearly gives them power and authority. He's the one who has it, and he gives it to his disciples. And they go, and they cast demons out, and they heal people. And it's evidence that the new kingdom, the kingdom of God, all authority of God, has now showed up and, and crashed into earth, and it's, it's wreaking havoc and, and people are taking notice. And he tells his disciples, don't take anything. I don't know if you've ever been on a trip and done that before. Literally, he says, don't take anything. No staff, which some of you walk with a cane or you've had to. You're like, geez, Jesus, like poor, what about the old disciple? He's like hobbling. Hey, leave that cane at home. I'm going to give you strength for the journey. Physically, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enable you to walk where you need to walk. Climb what you need. I'm going to give, you don't need the staff. You don't need it. You don't need to fight anybody off. I got you. I'm going to protect you. Don't take a bag. No collecting any stones, which if you've had kids, you know, these are young disciples. They're like teenagers. No bag. You can't collect things along the way. You don't need to bring anything. There's no special method. I know you loved your previous rabbi and you had that great pastor who gave you this amazing book. Don't bring the book. Go. You don't need anything. And I love this. He says, no bread. What? I can't bring my sand? No PB&J? Nope, no bread. Nothing. Nothing. No staff, no bag, no bread. 
And certainly no money. What do you think you're going to do? Buy something along the way? No. You're not bringing any money, and you're definitely not going to bring a second tunic, which some of you are like, all right, that's it. I'm not going. I need a second tunic. Like, when I look at my wardrobe every Sunday, I kind of, at times, I'm like, man, maybe I need to go buy a new shirt. I have like five shirts. And so I better have them clean before the weekend, you know, or the next week. And it's like, oh, I'm no extra tunic. The interesting thought here is when they showed up in town and they were received, it says in verse 4, whenever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. Meaning that these disciples went out, and if they were received into a house with no hot tub and espresso machine, you, you stay there. You don't start talking around town, hey, you got, what's going on at your house? Oh, you got an espresso machine? Okay, I'll compromise. You don't have a hot tub, but you got an espresso machine. I'll stay at that house. I don't have bread. I don't have a staff. I don't have a tunic. I'm going to this guy. Hey, how's your wardrobe? You got an extra tunic? Because mine, you know, I spilled soda on it, and now it's all sticky and gross. Like, I got to, none of that. Because Jesus wanted them to know the message is enough. There's no method that you need. There's nothing you need to add to the message. There's no dependence upon anyone or anything except Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? And it's convicting for sure. And then he says in verse 5, And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. Leaving even the dust on at least that sign of I'm not... Washing my hands. There's no condemnation on me. I brought the message to you. You rejected it. You keep the dust. And, and we're moving on. It's about the message. And the method changes. And as a result of that, we see this outline. I'm going to run through it in your notes. And then we're going to look at a couple things that, that Jesus is trying to focus us in on. Is that truth that it's about the message and the method changes, but it's about his message. And so we see that as they go, in verse 6, they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. The gospel, the kingdom is here, the authority of God is here, inviting people in. And then the next question arises that he's going to ask later on in verse 18 through 20. He asks, he, Luke puts forth here in verse 7, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because he, it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. So on all the news headlines, John's raised from the dead. Herod's like, what? I thought I killed him. Verse 8, some thought it was Elijah that appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. In verse 9, Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he wanted to see Jesus. The crowd starts inquiring, who is this Jesus? The government has questions. And the disciples move from their mission trip back into Jesus, and they, they go to this region, Bethsaida, and there's these crowds that gather. They come out from all over, and they come to Jesus. And, and this is the backdrop we see. They have huge needs. And, and it gets late in the day. Some say it's about 4 o'clock. And, and the disciples are, are wise enough, you know, maybe Peter uh, just gets the nudge from his wife and he goes to Jesus and he's like, hey, it's Sunday, Jesus, you've been teaching some great things, but they got to go, they got to go get lunch ready for tomorrow at school, um, and they got to prepare for the week, they got to, there's no way, like there's nothing around, we're way out, like, you know, four hours out in the Central Valley, they got to get back to at least Paso, get some, you know, gross out, at Trader Joe's up if they're still open, get some things ready for the week, they got to get food, they got to get clothes. There's no bread here. And Jesus turns to him and says, you, you feed him. Which at first it's like, 
he has already given them power and authority. They just got back from their missions trip, and now they're back home in a sense. And Jesus is like, dude, the, the mission's not over. But he was really saying, you feed them. You do it. And they couldn't. The reality was the method that they had been depending on had now changed, and they were home, and they were going, okay, we need to send them away. And the human needs were met only by the Creator. The creation couldn't sustain itself. The creation, Jesus was revealing, you're always in need, and you're always going to be in need unless you look to me to meet your needs. And we can do it. You don't need to, you don't need to go to Trader Joe's. I'll feed you. And in and and different accounts you can look at in Matthew 14, Mark 6, and John 6, some of the disciples respond sarcastically, but Luke keeps it concise because he's trying to get Theophilus, and he's trying to get us to see the message is primary and has enough. We don't need these methods. And so the disciples respond sarcastically, and the other accounts go, dude, come on, we, all we have is a couple fish and five loaves. Like, what are we going to do? And, and he's like, you feed them. Which, if you know your Bible, which the these disciples would have known, and, and later on, as God opened their minds to realize it's 2 Kings chapter 4, you give them something to eat. Jesus was calling back to Elisha, commanding his servants to feed a hundred men with 20 loaves of bread, and the miraculous provision that God did. It says, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says, they will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. And so here we see, verse 13, he says, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. In verse 14, there's about 5,000 men. He said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50. And they did so, and had them all sit down. In verse 16, Taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. In the Greek, that was a continual giving. He just kept giving and kept giving. And at first, you're like, okay, you go and deliver to the first 50, and then you come back, and Peter's like, there's more. That's kind of cool, man. He must have done some tearing. And you've been around those teams where you're like, there's not enough mac and cheese, and all of a sudden, the kids you know, and friends are eating, and they're still left in the pot. And you're like, wow, we kind of you know, portioned it just right and made it, made it go a little longer. And then after the third and fourth, you, you keep coming back, and you're like, okay, something's up. So Jesus is doing something that only Jesus can do, reminding us it's the message. And, and he's given power and authority to us to be messengers of this. And we stand back in awe and go, wow, that's amazing. In verse 17, they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. The 12 disciples. He was saying, hey, you're going to serve and you're going to see some miraculous things, but the message is primary. And the message might make it awkward. And it might put you in a tough spot because you're not going to be able to have your physical needs met. Seemingly, right? Missionaries, every time I hear about a missionary, no one's like, yeah, they went over to you... Romania to be missionary, and their, their cupboards have been stacked full. They have food all day, every day. No. We always hear of missionaries who are like, yeah, they have no food. They've had no food, but somehow God provides. Every missionary. There's never been a trip you take where the missionary is like, dude, it's been great. Like, do you want a truck? I got a truck right here. You want to, you want, hey, you want to retire? I have two retirement accounts. I don't know what to do with all the money. Here's money. Hey, you want an extra tunic? Here you go. Dude, I got loaves of bread. You guys want to take some food home? But what you leave from those mission trips is you go, wow, their faith, 
their faith, their dependence on God, their trust in Jesus. I need to get rid of some of these tunics. I need to get rid of some of this bread. I need to figure out how to redistribute some of this wealth because I think it's keeping me from focusing on the message because I'm so distracted by all of the methods we have. They had enough. Jesus was trying to get them to see, I know you have power and authority. It came from me. Don't get distracted by the method. Focus on the message. And now you see, no matter what situation you're in, I'm going to provide for you. Focus on the message. And then he, he wants to make sure they don't get distracted by what people are saying. He, he reinforces who he is and clarifies the message of the suffering king. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm going to rise from the grave. No big deal. But if you want to come after me, you're going to have to die to yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow me. And so as we unpack this, these powers that they had where they were preaching the gospel, healing the sick. The real work was that they got to present the gospel. The kingdom of God had come. In Luke eleven twenty, later we're going to see, but I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. They're saying, look, when demons leave, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom power indicates the presence of the kingdom. This amazing truth, the kingdom of God is the reign of God and the sovereignty of God. These apostles were preaching the kingdom and its nearness to the men and women who were under it and would come to Jesus and humbly submit themselves and say, Jesus, you're my Lord. Too many ministries suffer from having too much. The church formed by the apostles would say, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. So much of the professing church is silent, asleep, because they can say neither. They don't have gold or silver, and they certainly don't have Jesus. So they have nothing to offer. It's just another community event where we get together and talk about some things. Pain and suffering, as the experience of humans, as we see pain and suffering, we see Ukraine, we see these tragedies, and we can't reconcile how a loving God can allow this. Human trafficking, child starvation, poverty, what the country and the world is facing is God aware? Does he know? How can these things happen? As we pray personally for a loved one who has cancer, who dies, a marriage who's cr that's crumbling and divorce is inevitable, where is God? These are the doubts that are so hard to resolve. If God's really in control, if really the power and authority, but so often we, we look to God when we have these hurts we can't resolve and we we read in Scripture and we don't see in the church. Because so often we're looking to God as a babysitter, not a father, who's here to appease and comfort people and make sure everyone's okay, but not the loving father who has a plan and a purpose. And so this message he wants to purify is this preaching in the apostolic church, the beginning church, was all about Jesus. And the people wondered who he was and where he came from. Because earth had been invaded from heaven. And their perplexity was set the stage for this truth. As, as Jesus is praying in verse 18, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? So Jesus is a part of the, from the crowds and he has his disciples. He's praying and the disciples hear him ask this question, who do the crowds say that I am? There's this 
interesting context we see because contextually we might be able to say, hey, CNN says that Jesus is John the Baptist. And Fox News says Jesus is Elijah. And others say he's a prophet who's back from the dead. And I don't know. And, and there's this response. And then Peter is like, hey, I was reading the other day and praying. And the Holy Spirit, I, I, you're, the, you're Christ, the living Son of God. And, and Jesus looks at him and is like, yeah, that's, that's true. And that's been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. You didn't just come up with that. You didn't Google that. Peter wasn't over there Googling. You know, oh, who's Jesus? I doubted on the water and I sank. Who is this guy that, that I doubted and still kept me from drowning? He knew because the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. Nothing, no method helped him understand the clarity and truth of the message. So we see here in verse 19, some say John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Verse 20, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Christ. These two currents in our days, as many of you have, have heard about, you know, Cal Poly students, they go by Costco and they get a, a soft top surfboard and all of a sudden, hours later, they're swept out to sea. And they have no clue. And I'm like, how does that happen? Like, should we, should we have a 101 like, water safety class at Cal Poly before these valley people and people who have never been to the ocean? Like, there's rip currents. There's things that happen under you that will suck you out. And I, I can't talk too much because even a skilled waterman and someone, water polo, a strong swimmer, you get in those rip currents, there's nothing you can do. And, and if you're not fully aware, especially when fog sets in, you're disoriented, before you know it, you're miles up or south, on, north or south on a beach and you have no clue what happened. You're sucked out and you're fighting it. And there's these two currents sweeping into the church and pulling us away from the true gospel. One is deconstructing. Some of you may have heard of this spiritual deconstruction. It's Deconstructionism may be controversial. It's an emotionally charged subject. There's different approaches, and some are done poorly, but dis deconstruction hurts people. And, and through my experience, I've had to deconstruct a lot because I got swept up in a lot of social justice and fusion into the church because people in the late 90s, early 2000s were saying, hey, the church needs to do more. We need to serve more. We need to give more. And all these mission trips I was doing, yeah, great. And then I, I got a DVD of these college kids that went over with a video camera before phones had video cameras and they filmed all the atrocity in Uganda. And it was like, man, I'm, I'm going to sell everything. I'm going to go. I'm not going to have a tunic, loaf of bread, money. I'm just going to go to Uganda and I'm going to fix this. And I had to deconstruct that. And, and we all do in a lot of ways. We have to deconstruct as we get wrapped up into these teachings from teachers that are, that are close to Jesus and then they start walking away from Jesus, even if it's one degree. And before you know it, before I knew it, I was miles away from the true Jesus. I had been following an altogether different Jesus and different gospel that was based largely upon some oppressor and someone who's oppressed and how we can come in and fix it and do better. And I humbly realized, man, this as I sincerely examined my beliefs, seeking to let go of what was untrue so I could hold on to what is true. That's good deconstruction. I had to deconstruct a false gospel. As I looked at the reality that in Uganda, God was still on the throne in heaven, and, and the church was still thriving. The spirit was in kids because a lot of those villages, adults couldn't go. And so the kids went and they prayed, 
And there was all these, these open areas where de- demonic worship and, and interacting with demons and calling them to come into these kids and soldiers and take girls and all this atrocity that was happening. And the kids got in the water and prayed. And everything around the watering hole was dead because it was all committed to Satan. And everything came back to life and the water was pure again. And the village all came back to Jesus. And God was moving and is moving. There's still evil. There's still atrocities there in Ukraine and all over the world. But as we see in Matthew 5, 43 through 44, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There's, there's not this love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There's not us bringing justice. It's us realizing that we can't stop abortion. We can't stop murder because it's a sin problem. It's not focusing on one aspect. It's in us. It's a sin nature. The whole world is under the curse. And that's why Jesus is saying, the message is I'm the Savior. And I'm going to go on the cross. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. And the disciples are like, that sounds like painful anyways. And they don't get it. It's another purpose. And so as we see Five times in Matthew 5, Jesus said, you've heard it said, but thought true, and it wasn't. So deconstruct. You've heard these things that aren't true. I'm here to make you hear the message, give you all the evidence, so when I die and rise again, you'll have everything you need. The Holy Spirit's going to reveal to you, and you'll understand. Over and over, Jesus and Peter, Matthew 16, Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem to suffer, be killed, raise the third day. And Peter says, no, no, never. You're the conquering king, not the dying Messiah. Jesus, you're the Christ of God. I I was in my Devo. The Spirit revealed it to me right here. I have the date. You're the Christ. What are you talking about? Jesus had to help them see that it's 100% trust in him. Jesus wanted the 12 to learn to trust him for everything. For everything. That's why he did ministry alongside them. He sent them out. You do ministry. Okay, come back. Let's make sure you're about the message not the method. Faith in him was to be foundation of their ministry. Significantly, the Last Supper, he asked them if they lacked anything when he sent them out, and they answered, no, nothing, in verse 35. And the second thing is when we look at who the crowds say Jesus is. The government's perplexed. Wait a minute, is Jesus going to come alongside us? Is he going to come under us? Can we, can we use this guy Or is he against us? Do we need to kill this guy like we did his cousin? And respectfully, looking at some terms that have propped up over the number of years, over 30 years, this has been in in higher education and in law, and now it's been in our society, society and social conversations and on the news. How do we think through our own presumptions and cultural backgrounds? It's not wrong to ask these questions, but as we see, there's some words that were borrowed from from the African-American community and and now been used to define the woke, being aware of suffering. And if you look deeper of of where that word has been taken from the Afrocentric community to be aware of injustice, it's now been applied to much more militant things. And so I want to just simply define some of these as we see in Ephesians 6, we're not at war with flesh and blood. It's not a race war as, as politics and CNN and Fox try and make it. It's simply a spiritual battle. And in many pulpits, gospel language is being supplanted by socialist rhetoric. And we've seen pastors either unaware or just not clear. And it's, it's true. 
unless you take time and Google and then read these things, most articles now from atheists and unbelievers are saying, I'm not woke in the sense of where this ideology is going. I want to be aware and I want to help where there's need and injustice and, and racial racism. But what this is, 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 is something different. So the, the critical race theory, the system of thought, was founded by Richard Delgado and Derek Bell in 1989 and asserts that there's hidden racism is pervasive through society and all whites are racist. Black and other minorities are not racist because they lack the power to be so. And the solution to the problem of racism is A, to deconstruct white power and B, redistribute power to minorities. So again, there's A, the first thing coming after the church is deconstructionism in the faith and now the deconstruction is how do we, it's a power struggle. And, and that's why it goes against Jesus, because Jesus says we're to serve one another. And this is saying, no, who's more important and who gets the power? And we're going to be in power. And so social justice, which I got swept up in, the riptide of social justice took me out, historically is a phrase looking at the broad attempts to fight against unfair inequalities in civic life and hold the unjust perpetrators accountable. But in woke thought, this phrase alludes to twofold practice of deconstructing white power and redistributing the power to minorities. And so we see that there's this reality in the church that 2015 was in introduced. And there's this other word that, that's kind of grouped into this whole movement, intersectionality, that you may not have heard of. It's the crisscrossing of categories of oppression in society, including race, class, gender, sexuality, age, ability, citizenship, and body type an intersectional thought, basically looking at who the most oppressed person is. So with the rise of BLM over the years, they looked at, hey, if you're LGBT or you're a part of the nuclear family, we're going to attack that nuclear family. We're going to say race and sex. If you're, if you're judged on that, you shouldn't be. And so the most oppressed person is a black, poor, LGBT, young, disabled, undocumented individual. And as we see, the problem here is they look at creation to find the solution. They're not looking at the message anymore. They're looking for different methods to redistribute power. They're not looking at Genesis 3 and saying, Adam sinned. And there's a creator God who has all the power and authority, and we're the creation, and we've sinned against the creator, and we need a savior to fix that problem. And that's why these thoughts in cultural higher education, now society, go against the gospel. Because they're saying that the answer is redistributing power. The, the answer isn't Jesus, who has the power and the authority over spiritual and physical needs. And we submit to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And so these, these, these words, the danger, why a lot of people are saying this is the most alarming thing in over 300 years the church has faced is because they use a lot of the same words. Love, justice, injustice, poor, oppressed, that's why I wrote this message and talked to some people about it. And then it's heavy on my heart. This is hard to talk about. And on Friday, I think it was, CNBC came out and said Jesus died because he spoke up for the marginalized. And Jesus was a socialist. That's why this ideology is so, it veers. And it redefines Jesus. I've, I have to admit, I followed that Jesus for a while because of the currents in society. Oh yeah, we're, we're helping people. And then you wake up and realize, oh, these are actually attacking the Jesus of the Bible. This is a different Jesus. And so why do we bring this up? Why do we have to ask ourselves these questions? Am I deconstructing 
truth or am I deconstructing error so I can hold on to truth? And there's, is there a social justice or a new narrative that's being pulling me into a direction that's away from Jesus? How do we build our belief system? Is it just the church? Are you listening to Brandon? No, read the Bible. I just gave you terms. Those weren't mine. I didn't define it. I didn't make it up. I'm not against anyone. I'm for Jesus, and I'm going to defend the faith that the Bible holds clear. And, and I'm encouraging you to read it. There's denominations and churches that have killed people because they wanted to keep this out of your hands. And I'm saying you need to read it and realize when Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself, take it across daily. That means your worldview has to submit to Christ. That means that your actions and your words have to be like Christ. And we bring our own filters, don't we? We read the Bible as, as our family interpreted it, as how we were raised. And there's a crucial part of Christian ministries clarifying the antithesis between Christianity and every other system. And Paul reminds us this. The entire New Testament post the Gospels is, here's the lies the culture's telling you, and here's how they kind of intersect. Here's how you borrow the same language, but this is where error is, and this is where truth is. And they clarify that. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. That's a verse taken out of context about lust. Again, we in the church downplay the power and authority of God. The church is supposed to be alive, engaging in cultural dialogue and debate, saying that's wrong. I want to be against racism, but I'm not going to attack the family that God created, one man and one woman, and allow gender neutrality and anyone to decide what they want to do and who they want to be. And now in California, AB 223, allowing babies to be killed up until 28 days after birth. We're not just going to let the cultural conversation go. We're going to hold tight to God's word and say, no, there's a creator. We're the creation. We sinned against the creator. Jesus came to save in this passage that, he, that Paul writes again to the church in, in Colossians 2.8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world. Do not according to Christ. He's contending for the faith. He's saying, guys, it's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy for another gospel to be preached. It's so easy for something that feels good, sounds good, looks good to walk in. And, and maybe you even use the same words, but different definitions. So we're supposed to take every thought captive and submit it to Christ. Is this Christ-centered? Is this the gospel? Or am I living outside of the gospel? This means we must practice cultural deconstruction. What of my culture is actually hindering the gospel? Do I have too many tunics? Do I, am I so focused on the next thing that I'm doing in my kingdom that I'm not I'm not sharing the gospel and building his kingdom. Jesus says to Peter, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns, Matthew 16, 23. You're so concerned with the method, Peter. You're so concerned with how I'm supposed to come in on a horse and be this conquering king. You thought I was. I'm the suffering servant. 
And you're supposed to go and serve. And as you serve, you're going to suffer. And I'm going to provide for you because you're focused on the message that I'm the Savior, the suffering servant. You thought I was going to achieve victory through conquest. I achieve victory through my death and resurrection. We need to let go of the things that aren't true. Culturally, what's a part of you that shouldn't be? Let the Holy Spirit reveal that to you. What methods are you so clinging to and go, yeah, well, I can, I can justify an extra 50 grand on that. I can justify another, another week spent on this or thoughts spent on this instead of, man, how, how am I representing Christ, letting go of what's not true and clinging to what is? It's going to cost you. It's going to hurt. As Jesus said, in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed, and on the third day raised. That's everybody. That was his boys. That was, he came to the religious people who studied his word, knew his word, and their hearts were far from Jesus. So what are these beliefs that we need to let go of so we can cling to what's true? Because Jesus says in verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Read it in the Bible. Daily. It's not do it once when you're 12 or 5 and someone sprinkled water on you. Man, I'm an altar boy now. I'm good. No, daily. If you're following Christ, it's a daily submission. It's a daily sacrifice. Verse 24, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Everything you believe about God may not be true. When you discover parts of what you believe are not true, you don't need to leave the whole faith. You don't need to walk away. Just let go of what's not true and hold on to what is for whoever, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So losers are savers, and savers are losers. Again, Jesus is direct and flipping everything upside down, saying there's things you have that you want to save. You're going to lose it. Let go of those things that aren't true. Focus on Jesus. And as he says it, that, those words pierce the heart of men. Because so many, especially in the West, we build our kingdoms, and we're like, that. So many atheists think this is preposterous, and yet the Holy Spirit keeps working on them. You're going to lose it. You're going to lose it all. There's no way. You can hold tight, white-knuckle that life you've made, and you're going you're gonna to lose it in the end. Because hell isn't just being separated from God. It's being separated from His grace. The world has this common grace, and the believers have His saving grace too. And they're going to be separated from that forever. That's why we're like, ah, I know what's true, but it's not about what being right is. It's about loving you as Jesus loved you and serving you because we only have a few more minutes to serve as Jesus served and love as Jesus loved so that they can see the message of the cross and how beautiful the blood is that flowed off of it to cover their sin as it did ours. And we don't know who's going to believe or who's going to spit in our face but we know what to do when they do, right? We kick the dust off. We go to the next person. There's another person who's yet to believe. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me, then I'm going to be ashamed of you. In verse 26, I tell you, there's some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The amazing thing is we've experience God, those that that believe, right? And so often what we hear is, man, the hardest people to share the gospel with are my loved ones. Two things. 
If we focus on the message, it's going to compel us to be messengers and tell those we love, no matter the cost. Two things we need to do. Go to them and ask for forgiveness. Go to your loved one. Hey, I got to ask. God ask you to forgive me. I've blown it. I've been a horrible representation of who Jesus is to you. I've maybe been focusing on being right and not loving. You don't have to say that last part. Hey, I need to ask your forgiveness. I've been a horrible representation of Jesus to you. Will you forgive me? Sure, all right. And then don't, just leave it. The second thing, maybe days, weeks, let the Spirit lead. Sometime later on, go to them and say, hey, I need to ask your forgiveness for something else. I don't know what the reaction is going to be. Probably a little bothered, depending on how much. Who knows? And okay, what do you need forgiveness for this time? I need forgiveness for not sharing with you the most important thing to me in this world. Can I share that with you? And look for that door and share with them the hope you have in Jesus, the message. Stop being so distracted by the methods. They always change. So those may be considering leaving the faith. Love them. In many ways, Peter doubted, denied Jesus three times, and Jesus loved him and came back to him in John 21. Hey, you doubted three times. You denied me three times. Do you love me? Three times, Jesus asked. So that Peter knew it was more about Jesus loving Peter than that Jesus was right and Peter was wrong. And so how did God choose to have his gospel preached on Pentecost where 3,000 people were saved? Peter, whose faith was built time and time again through his doubt, through his deconstructing falsehoods to cling to what was true, God prepared him to engage a culture that was hostile, a culture that had a lot of doubts. So we see that doubt often is an invitation to continue to grow, push forward, and even people right now aren't doing well. Maybe you know someone. God has them. God's still on the throne. As Peter wrote 30 years after being forgiven in 1 Peter 2, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd, an overseer of your souls. So as we know firsthand, the love, the grace, the mercy of Jesus. He's a suffering servant. And he's coming back as a conquering king. And that's what we focus on the message. Being okay when God changes the methods. But we're focused on the message of Jesus. Him suffering, dying on the cross, rising again, and calling us to take up our cross and follow him. So as we think about this, Jim Elliot was a great representation of this who said you know what if there's blood flowing in my veins it needs to be on the altar of God otherwise take the blood out was his prayer I'm not bold enough to pray that he's hopefully I can grow up to be like Jim one day and he said this he said he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose when you think about the message it's going to cost you taking up your cross daily denying yourself daily but he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We have an eternal inheritance that we can't lose in Jesus. And we're not a fool if we let go of this world, if we focus on his kingdom and building his kingdom and reaching people for him as Jim did lay down his life, reaching people in the jungles of Ecuador. The message of the kingdom is Jesus has power and authority, will you follow him or leave him? Are you focused too much on the method or the message? 
So as we take communion now, Jesus invites us to say, look, I've come to make all the sad things come untrue. I've come to restore what was broken in you. I've come and brought the message of hope and that the kingdom of God, the power and authority is here now. Are you coming under it? Or are you still trying to create your own reality? And he gave his body that all who would believe in him would be saved. So if you're here needing to be saved, needing to trust in Jesus now, believe in him, turn to him. In this minute now for believers, we're gonna go to God and say, okay, Spirit, open my eyes to see an area in my life where maybe I'm holding on to a lie and I need to let it go and to hold on to the truth with both hands. As you're praying, Jesus talked about that two hands and he said in Matthew 23, 23, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. Yeah, yeah, you, you tithe, you the mint and dill and, and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. You're supposed to do both. You're supposed to, yeah, give, but you're supposed to also do justice and mercy and faithfulness. We're supposed to do both. And as believers, we have to go to Jesus for him to make us new and to give us that new life and the spirit to empower us to do what God's called us to do. So I'm gonna leave you to pray with the Lord and I'll come back and close this in a minute.